these lunatics always go, well, because it says in the Bible. Okay, stop. Um, what's your name? Yes. Times Square, New York City. What's your name? Times Square. In my book, I say that there's no reason at all to believe that uh, the so-called Jesus of Nazareth ever existed. Do you believe in God? Uh, no. All-time champion of false promises and exaggerated claims, religion, no content. You've got to respect everybody's beliefs. No, you don't. That's what gets us in trouble. There's no reason to believe that we live in a universe ruled by an invisible monster, Yahweh. Now, you talk about a good bullshit story. Holy shit. I have an uncle who believes he saw Sasquatch. We do not believe him, nor do we respect him. So, do you believe in God? Oh, uh, no, I don't. I, I think that I can uh, find the things in myself that I need to believe in. Our fight in this world is not against Islam, it's against religion. Be very clear about this. And you are an atheist? I am. Yeah. And what do you think of the fact that it seems to be a movement that's gaining credibility as of late? Uh, I think it's about fucking time. <laughs> for me, it's like an invention for manipulate the, the public, for me. It is a very pitiable, I think. It is a fraud uh, that may have worked on stupefied uh, peasants in the Greater Jerusalem area, but should really have no power to influence anyone. This is Joe, and this is his family. Five people out of a population of roughly 330 million Americans. Their faith journey is similar to what many others are going through. Our faith has been a little stale as of late. Uh, in our family, we've questioned some of our long-held beliefs. Uh, we've questioned what normally was a given or important and a part of our routine. At a time when atheism and agnosticism is drastically on the rise, people are more frequently asking questions about what is true. Is God real? Or are people of faith all being duped? Is a divine figure something that humans merely crafted to derive a sense of meaning in their own lives? In the recent past, society has grown increasingly skeptical about what is true. Fake news. Look, alternative facts are not facts. Misinformation and so-called fake news continues to be rapidly distributed on the internet. I genuinely love the process of manipulating people online for money. Deception and disinformation is now mainstream. With the dawn of deepfakes and social media misinformation that's spread around like wildfire, it's no wonder we have no idea who or what to trust. A falsehood is told about removing the bust of Martin Luther King Jr. from I, the Oval Office. That, no, that's just flat out false. Somebody said I took the statue out of my office, and it turned out that that was fake news. But regardless of your political persuasion, it's obvious that the general public in the U.S. and around the world are challenging long-held beliefs and traditions in search of the truth. This is a significant reason why many people journey to the Holy Land every year. For people of faith, 
There is a desire to experience their beliefs by seeing, touching, and visiting the locations identified in the scriptures. And so marks the beginning of our journey to the Holy Land. Hello, everyone. We're the Sorbos. Kevin, Sam, Brayden, Shane, Octavia. We are the Sorbos. Hello. And we're going to Israel. We're very excited. I'm traveling with my family and the Sorbos and 40 other people on this uh, tour. So we'll fly through the night and then Monday uh, we'll be in Tel Aviv. Well, my goal is to seek understanding and to bring our family closer together and to really strengthen our faith. So our family is at this faith crossroads and uh, right in the middle of this contemplation, we met the Sorbos. We very much enjoyed talking with them, getting to know them, and they invited us on this trip to Israel. They were leading a group, so we decided to join them. Took some time off of work because this is important to me, um, and I'm really looking forward to this. I heard that it's really hot there, and not like because my hair gets really big. <laughs> We're here on a journey to discover, is faith important? Should we be paying any attention to faith? If God exists, is he even relevant today? These are important questions, I think. And so we're gonna travel throughout Israel and look at the history here and look at the faith here and try to discover some answers. That is the reason that we wanted to take this trip. We feel this disconnect uh, lately and the kids are getting into the teenage years. You know, they're 12 and 14 and 16 and they're, they're doing other things and, and the family doesn't feel as locked as it, as it did all the way up until this point. And so here we were looking for something to do together and next thing you know, we're going to Israel. I'm excited. I'm I am excited, excited too. <laughs> now I just got to finish packing. <laughs> oh my gosh. I suspect we're going to learn a lot on this trip. What we're hoping to see is a group of people discovering things about their faith that they didn't know, things about Jesus Christ that they didn't know, things about history that are new to them. With that said, I, I certainly hope that this trip bolsters you in your faith, in your, in your walk with Christ. My name is Bruno. I'm Scott Huntley. And I'm Deanne. Kathy. I'm Rocky. I just can't wait to see what's going to come of the trip. And just like that, the group is off. 40 strangers that my wife Sam and I are taking on the road with us for 10 days, with a couple of Israeli guides providing insight and context along the way. But before we get too far into the trip, it's important to remember the cultural context and this increasingly popular opinion that continues to grow in the United States. I was growing up, and I'm sure this is true of you, I'm sure it's true of, of most people here, I really believed in Santa Claus. And not only did I believe in Santa Claus, but I grew to really love Santa Claus. You know, I became very emotionally invested in him. 
But is it possible that you believe in Jesus Christ and you love Jesus Christ the same way I did Santa Claus? This is certainly a fair question to ask. It would be entirely sad to devote your very existence to something that doesn't stand up to any sort of scrutiny whatsoever. And although we could do an entire eight-part series on the historical debate about the life and existence of Jesus, for now we will simply look at the Book of Antiquities of the Jews, written by the first century Jewish historian Josephus, in which he mentioned Jesus, what's been referred to as his brother James, and the imprisonment and subsequent death of John the Baptist, all of which line up with Scripture. Keep in mind, this is a Jewish historian who has no reason to invent or promote Jesus since there is no acceptance of Jesus as the Messiah in Judaism. That said, Josephus' work is largely considered to be reliable by modern historical scholars. Though some on the fringes will continue to deny Jesus ever existed, it's fairly well accepted, even by secular scholars, that a person named Jesus existed in what is now present-day Israel. But the goal here is not to rehash a debate that's existed for thousands of years, namely over the existence of God, but rather to look at the impact of faith on those in the group in the broader context of an increasing cultural shift towards irreligion. This trip is as much about experiencing the Holy Land as it is about processing and reflecting on the experience with others in the group. Sometimes these were informal, on-the-fly reflections with a selfie stick, and other times they were more formal, sit-down discussions. So the hard question is, why are we losing our religion? But the goal is the same, to process together what people are experiencing on the trip, ask the hard questions, and encourage and build each other up. In the words of Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. Why are there so many examples of people growing up Lutheran or Catholic and then walking away from their structured religion and wanting for something else? Perhaps we could call this examination of difficult life questions and processing of these experiences together as a form of what has largely become a lost art in the United States, community. People now don't even know their neighbors. It's, it's just, we're, we're, we're becoming, as much as the country's growing, we're becoming more and more isolated. And I think that leads to a lot of people just be, being very unhappy with their lives. They sit there and like social media and go, oh my gosh, look, I'm up to 5,000 friends. They're not your friends. There's just so many kids in the United States that just seem to be lost. And the only thing they seem to care about is maybe what the Kardashians are doing or, or things that don't really matter. We've lost the ability to socialize with each other. People don't socialize. Go out to any restaurant. Go to go to any airport. Everybody, and I'm 52. Everybody's on their computers or their iPhones. They want to uh, have all the latest trends, have all the latest phones, do whatever they want, but they're not thinking about where the good things in their life come from. is at the historic Sea of Galilee, where, according to the scriptures, Jesus walked on water, among other miracles. We are in Tiberias. It's warm, it's hot, but it's really beautiful and we're in shade, which is always a plus. Situated on the western shore of the sea, Tiberias is considered to be one of the four holy cities in Judaism. As the group prepares to cross the sea, like many of the followers of Christ did 2,000 years ago, it is a significant first stop and one that was kicked off with the singing of quite possibly the world's most recognized hymn 
and the reading of scripture. This is Matthew 14, verse 22, 23. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him into the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up onto the mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, Is it a spirit? And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Who's going to walk on water today for us? <laughs> I was only, I was a demigod. <laughs> Picking up the pace a little bit, the group also got a little toe-tapping flavor of Jewish culture while crossing the sea. Dancing was give us a demonstration. <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was crazy, but it was fun. It put everybody in a good mood, yeah. We never, have never done the Jewish never, dancing, never. but it was a lot of fun. Today, being on the Sea of Galilee was surreal. Just, I've never seen anything like it. It was um, transformative to me. And when we did the dance, it just united us all. You know, for me, music, dance, the universal language. And in this day and age, when I watch the media and I see so much hatred, I yearn for connectivity, human connectivity. And when we danced today, I just felt freedom. You know, I just, dancing with everyone, it, it just felt liberating. And I just wanted to forget all of the, the evil in the world. And I think that's what Jesus intended for us to be kind and humble and just human. In Israel, community is something that is very much a part of everyday life. They simply can't do without it. The weekly Shabbat services, marking the beginning of the Sabbath is a time where Israelis often spend time with family over good, hearty meals. It all traces back to faith. In fact, one of God's Ten Commandments is to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And like with all commandments, God commands it because He knows what we need better than we do. Today's the day. We're up and at it. <laughs> Heading to Kana. We're going to renew our wedding vows. 
excited about that. I'm gonna take my hat off, put some hair hair gel in there, add some groovy glasses, mm -hmm. renew my wedding vows with my lady, Josie. Kana, the location of Jesus' first recorded miracle, where he turned water into wine. And it just so happened to be at a wedding. I don't think this was accidental either. Marriage is the earthly relationship that most closely resembles the relationship that we humans have to God through Christ. In fact, the metaphor of marriage is frequently used throughout Scripture to describe the unbreakable covenant love that God has for us, a relationship not intended to be broken. We have a number of people that are renewing their vows, and all of them put on white dresses, and all the men didn't do much of anything. It's so funny, the guys are like, oh, I'll just put on a nice button-down shirt. It's really not, you know, with shorts. Oh, great beloved, before the Lord, who here stand in his land, and the village to which he blessed, with his presence, I now recommit your life and your merit to that living Lord that is your life to whom you have given all of what you are, your body, your mind, and your soul. Then go forth. Amen. in Kana. Such a beautiful service and in case the, the knot was getting a little bit loose, nice and tight for eight couples. It was such a beautiful day. came on this trip to Israel because, well, first of all, I've always wanted to come here and see where Jesus walked and have the Bible come to life. And um, my husband passed away last September, and so we didn't get to make the trip together, and I know he would want me to continue on. And so when I came here, um, I thought of the opportunity to be baptized in the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized. How awesome is that? I get to be baptized by Hercules. That's a bonus. So... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. When Kenny and I went over and we're sitting and talking, he said, so are you going to be uh, baptized? And I said, I am. And he said, when did you know that you believed in God? I told him a story I hadn't told him before. Back when I just left college, I didn't graduate. But to get a job, and it was a rule that you had to have your degree, and they had no exceptions. And so I said I graduated, and I lied. And so I kept working harder thinking, 
if if I do better, he's going to eventually go, ah, who cares? But it, it turned out that there were no exception. He said, we got to let you go. And so now I don't have a job and I don't have a car, but I wasn't going to give up. So I ended up taking a job in Grand Island and I went to SUNY Brockport, which is between Buffalo and Rochester, but it's about an hour and a half drive. And I only had one way to travel and it was a motorcycle and it was winter. It was during one particular sleet storm that my life changed forever. It was a frantic, lonely, scared conversation with myself and with God out loud inside my motorcycle helmet that I fully realized God was with me and he answered my prayers. We know Jesus was in Israel. We know he was in the Galilee and Jerusalem. So to be baptized in the Jordan River is simply an amazing experience. Not only is it a, a, a very moving spiritual experience, but it's familial in the sense that it unites people that don't even know each other as part of a family that has taken this excursion you know, to the Holy Land in the footsteps of Jesus. What is this moment? Tismo, Greek word, means to immerse. All it means, to immerse. So the Jewish custom was that water would be cleansing, purifying, both symbolically and sacramentally. And uh, the immersion created a change, a, a dynamic, a supernatural dynamic in the individual. Oh, I get emotional. I feel overwhelming joy. And I'm so thankful for this experience. And I get, like I said, get very emotional because it means so much to me. Wow, what an incredible moment today. It's surreal. I feel cleansed, replenished, renewed to, as an adult, re-experience my baptism and my reaffirmation to Jesus Christ. Participating in the sacrament of baptism in the very river where Jesus was baptized is something to celebrate for the small number of Christians that get that opportunity. It's an amazing experience to, yes, all right. to be baptized in the Jordan, which is the river where Jesus was baptized. And after he was baptized, a voice said, good and faithful son, and so it's kind of life-changing. So I am renewed. Pretty neat. It's a pretty amazing moment to be here on the river. It's not the exact spot where Jesus What's was. What's the first thing you said to me on the way back? What did I say? I got to baptize my kids. Yeah, that's true. I got to baptize my kids. It's a special moment. Many people have been baptized in the Jordan River in the same way many in this group were baptized. Although, when you're a person of fame and it lands on social media, as is the case with music and cultural icon Demi Lovato, it may not be something that's celebrated. What do I think about Demi Lovato and this whole Israel trip? 
Bye. Here we have Demi Lovato being baptized in the Jordan River um, during a spiritual trip to Israel. Posts have been receiving a lot of criticism from people who are accusing Demi of supporting Israel amid the country's long-standing conflict with Palestine. Demi Lovato should be out of music for good. You look at what's going on, on the internet right now and how people just attack, viciously attack each other. People are afraid. People operate on fear more than anything else. It, it increases their anger, their hostility, their envy towards anybody who has any kind of success and anybody they want to disagree with. And they jump in this fraternity and sorority of this negativity. And there seems to be so much hate everywhere. We've reached a point in America where you can't even have an opinion that's different from the angry mob. The mob using anger and hate to destroy and tear down. No one could live up to the impossible standard of the angry mob. The fact that people stand ready to denounce and sever any connection to someone who even travels to Israel, but are mysteriously silent when nations surrounding Israel explicitly state they want to wipe Israel off the map is nothing short of anti-Semitic. We're experiencing a deterioration in our culture. It is not progress. It's actually regression. I have seen uh, a lot over the last few months is this, that there's a divest in Israel movement that people are trying to get on the internet. It's called boycott, divest, and sanction. It seems to be that people are saying that she shouldn't have gone, in, she shouldn't have boycotted Israel, but she shouldn't have gone, and particularly there Well, was that's a boycott. No, no, that no, she shouldn't you can, have gone. you can just say, I'm not going to go. It well, that's mean. a boycott. It's easy to get swept up in the highly politicized landscape that is the Middle East. Start choosing sides based on clever tweets and media narratives that suit your liking. The reality is that the conflict in the Middle East has a lengthy history, and it's not something that will be resolved over Twitter. We're next to the Dome of the Rock on Herod's platform where the old temples stood. And I just want to get your reactions to being here. It's, it's a complicated feeling because you can the history that Christianity and Judaism share here. You can also feel the conflict of what people struggle with and where their interpretations of God, their interpretations of religion, and it makes you wonder, is the reaction, is it there because of certain historical things or is it there because we're supposed to find God through a struggle and where, where does Jesus come in and all of it? It's a lot of contemplation and choosing to see how I can find Jesus even in this Contested area. Contested it is, and it's been that way for centuries. The Temple Mount was the original site of Solomon's Temple and then became the expanded Jewish Second Temple under Herod the Great after the Babylonians destroyed the original. Then that temple was destroyed by the Romans, and eventually the Temple Mount was ruled by Christians during the Byzantine Empire, even though the temple had failed to be restored. Then it became an Islamic shrine in the 7th century, later captured by the Crusaders who turned it into a church and yet again recaptured by Muslims who turned it back into an Islamic shrine. And during the Six-Day War in 1967, an Israeli flag was raised for a few hours before being lowered and then allowing a Jordanian religious trust to manage it, which is now policed by Israel. So, plenty of conflict over the years. Today, there's an ongoing conflict that exists between Israel and Palestine, which a group was able to hear from the first-hand account of an Israeli woman who experienced these conflicting worldviews head-on. 
This happened on a nature trail in a pine forest. I'm looking up at this canopy of pines and I can hear the birds and I can hear the crickets. And it's late in the afternoon and I see the sunset between the pine trees. And it's the most beautiful sunset. It's like pink and orange and purple and suddenly it's covered, it's obscured by the silhouette of a man's hand that God made. A man's hand clutching a knife and it's a serrated beast a foot long. And that's the moment where I watch him plunge that knife into my chest and it missed my heart by four millimeters. What have you become mankind that you could pounce on two women on a beautiful winter day, hold them at knife point for half an hour, tie them up, butcher them and smoke a cigarette while they to their God? I can give you an answer. There's two things. One is the incitement in the Palestinian culture, and the other is the financial incentive to go out and murder Jews. It is Nazi-like, and they're calling upon the death and the slaughter of the Jewish people. And children are being indoctrinated to be sent to their deaths at an early age. Go and stab a Jew, and you'll be a Shaheed, you'll be a martyr. The Palestinian Authority have received over the last few years over 70 billion dollars in financial aid. I go there all the time because I have wonderful Palestinian friends. I'm proud of my Palestinian friends. I'll help my Palestinian friends. I'm there. I'm there in the refugee camps. I'm there in their cities. There's not one play park. They are bereft of libraries. Their clinics are third world. Where has all the money gone? By the way, when I was in court with the terrorists, I faced my attackers and the judge said, but why did you murder an American Christian? And they shrugged their shoulders and they yawned. And then they started giggling and they said, oh, we thought she was Jewish. And I'm pro people, really, I really am. I've crowdfunded for Palestinians who want to work and get out of this perpetual victimhood. But let's say, you're in an environment where people are anti-Israel, and I find myself in this environment a lot. And I always say to them, you know why you have to stop the funding of the Palestinian Authority? You know why you have to speak out against the, the, the Palestinian leadership? Because the Palestinian leadership are brutal to their own people. They throw homosexuals in prison, sometimes they throw them off the roof. They, have, uh, they put people in prison without trial. I know this firsthand. So if you want to be pro-Palestinian and you want to be pro-people of faith and you're anti-Israel, you need to be speaking out against the abuse that the Palestinian Authority are dishing out on their own people. The possibility of clashes is palpable and is hiding in plain sight. The group saw this firsthand on their trip to Jericho to visit the site of numerous significant biblical events, which now sits in a Palestinian-controlled area. So Sam and I are walking here in Judea and came across this sign right here. It says, this road leads to Area A under the Palestinian Authority, the entrance for Israel. Uh, Israel citizens is forbidden. Forbidden. Dangerous to your lives and is against 
Israeli law. Because, because it's so dangerous. So dangerous for Israeli citizens to come here to enter into this park. Right. So now we're going to come this side. To see what the sign would be on the way out. And you can see, you know, on this side of the road, or certainly on the other side of the road, there's no sign there's that no says anything about uh, Arabs, going Arabs out. coming in to, to Israel. All this conflict that exists between religions begs the important question. Do you think religion is good for the world? No. No, I think religion is total dog shit because it just pisses people off. There's a lot, a lot of things from religion that are bad. Yeah, it maybe. wars and stuff, you know? Like, for example, what happens with ISIS, you see, stuff like that. I think it only caused troubles and war. If faith only causes conflict and strife in the world, then what value does it really have? Why not just abandon faith altogether? Many have claimed that not a single war has been carried out in the name of atheism. Is that true? While we may have never seen the word atheism printed on a tank or a shield, Let's take a look at the historical evidence and see if that claim is true. Mao, Stalin, both noted atheists and each responsible for the death of millions of people. The regimes didn't allow for a God because with communism, the be-all, end-all, in other words, God, is the nation-state. So anything that challenges its authority must be eliminated. The suggestion that war and brutality has eluded atheism is a lie. Everyone has a God. Which is why within communist societies, there's a deification of their leader. In fact, religion itself is its own religion. So to say that one is irreligious is a misnomer because everyone has something that they elevate to the point of worship. For some, it's power and influence. For others, it's money or their own accomplishments, drugs, sex. And yet others pursue a higher power that brought us all into being and is the one that defines right and wrong. But how do we know what's true? Is it better to simply say that everyone has their own truth? So these people who say, I don't need faith, I can be a good person, can they? In a practical sense, they'd say, well, you may need to go to church on Sunday, and you may need to read the Bible, but I know right from wrong, regardless of whether I read the Bible or whether I go to church. What's good and right in one's personal view may be evil in another person's worldview. And if a true God does not exist, then we have to grant that everyone's pursuit of what they deem good or evil is no better or worse than what I claim is good or evil. So faith is a compass. Would you say that's that's a reasonable statement? And the lack of faith would then be maybe a loss of that compass? When we've lost God as our nation's moral compass, everything becomes divisive and chaotic. Life becomes about vengeance, self-preservation by extinguishing those who don't agree with, even if it's not physical violence. How can you have the 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 How can you have the
In the U.S., it often looks more like what happened to Demi Lovato, which is a term that's more commonly referred to as cancel culture. So the Oscars, everybody, um, are about to happen, and Kevin Hart is the host. Celebrate the moment. Oh my God, I can't believe it's happened. And then the next morning, after a day full of congratulations and celebration. Not long after he got the gig, critics almost immediately started blasting the popular actor and comedian for old tweets and comedy routines they say were homophobic. Critics pounce, condemning several of his old tweets and comedy routines as homophobic. I'm hit with an onslaught on social media of my past. What do you think of the Kevin Hart thing? I'm not thrilled. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> I know that I've addressed it. I know that I've apologized. I know that within my apologies, I've taken 10 years to put my apology to work. I've yet to go back to that version of the immature comedian that once was. I've moved on. Here's the problem with the cancel mentality. It feels good. It feels good to let the world know that you recognize that what this person did or said is abhorrent so that you can show the world that you're more woke than the next person. But it's a bottomless endeavor, and it'll continue to play out until everyone has been canceled. One day, it's Kevin Hart. The next day, it's the one sitting across from him. I'm so annoyed that I've got to do this. This is um, Ellen DeGeneres at uh, a football game with George Bush and Laura Bush. That kind of disgusted me, because Bush is not Oh, it's, we just have some differences of opinion. No, he's a war criminal. No, I wouldn't be sitting down with Assad. I wouldn't be sitting down with Hitler. I wouldn't be alleged Hitler. You know, <laughs> if you have to say alleged war crimes by George Bush, and don't forget Dick Cheney and his entire, you know, cabinet. There must be a line where you determine that you will not be kind to someone, that it is actually unhelpful to a better society to show that you can get along with them. This idea is where our culture is trending, embracing the idea that it's actually more beneficial to society to not be kind to certain people. But it's built on this premise. You can put half of Trump's supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. <laughs> right? And some of those folks, they are irredeemable. But this attitude is easy to adopt when the Judeo-Christian values that our nation was built upon take the back seat because anyone and everyone can become the morality police and start dictating who is worthy of kindness or, on the contrary, who merits scorn, cancellation, and societal abortion instead. Romans had it up to here with the Jews because they kept revolting and they wanted them away. They decided to erase their name and the name of their country and the name of Jerusalem from all the history books. So they called Israel Palestina 650 years before Muhammad came to the scene. And Jerusalem became Ilia Capitolina. However, the Jew 
would never forget Jerusalem. And in their daily prayer, three times a day, they are yearning to come back to Jerusalem. Every generation, the Jews had it bad, no matter where and for what reason. We're at Masada, which is a pretty old ancient castle built by Herod. We're really, really high up. I mean, he must have been paranoid of someone coming after him. So he built this massive castle on the side of the hill. Returning to the account of first century historian Josephus, a group of under 1,000 Jews called the Sicarii revolted against the Roman rule of Jews in Judea by seizing the fortress from the Romans in 66 AD. A handful of years later, in 73 AD, the Romans sent 10,000 troops to Masada to lay siege to the Jews living there, who refused to live under Roman rule. Wow. Unbelievable. To the left of that, you'll see one of the Roman kings when they besieged Masada. This was an atrium. This would have been quite beautiful. There's frescoes on the walls and tiles on the floors and it was really quite an established you see these walls are all raw stone but you can see that it was plaster the whole place was plastered it would have appeared as basically as a modern building at that time which was quite exceptional because it's so high up on the cliff and they actually took nine months to build a ramp to come up here so for nine months the people living up here just want to be left alone they were throwing boulders down the hill trying to kill them we knew once they got to the final bit they said okay would you rather be slaves or do you want to die as free men while archaeological evidence is a bit ambiguous the account from josephus suggests that the jews knew they were outnumbered 10 to 1 and therefore it was only a matter of time before the romans overtook the fortress as such, the Jews decided that rather than be taken as slaves, they would eliminate themselves before the Romans got to them. But they would do so by killing each other so that it would be considered suicide, which is against Jewish law. It's really quite astonishing what happened here. It was a total middle finger to the Romans once they got up there. That's what it, that's what it was. <laughs> it was. Screw right. you guys. We're out. Masada represents what Jews have experienced over and over again throughout history. The desire worship God freely, without oppression, or forced submission to an earthly regime, emperor, or any other power wanting to establish dominance over them. Fast forwarding through history from the Roman Empire to the Germans in the 1940s, the story is sadly the same. The Jews are still being persecuted and find themselves on the run. World War II comes to an end, and in 1947, there was a vote in the United Nations, and uh, lo and behold, they agreed that uh, Arabs would live in part of the country, Jews would live in another part of the country. It was a lousy plan for the Jewish people, but the Jews were dancing in the street, literally, because finally we have a land, even if it's a meager, small piece of land, but everybody was happy. And the Arabs said, if you declared a sovereignty on this land, we will attack you. An attack they did. 
Latrun is a strategic high point halfway between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem that was seized by the Arab Legion in 1948. On the road to Jerusalem that went through Latrun, Jews were constantly being attacked by the Arab Legion, which eventually led to the Six-Day War in 1967. And here we have a war, this little country, against armies from Egypt, from Morocco, from Iraq, with Jordan, with Saudi Arabia, with Syria and Lebanon. We attack from all directions. I figured that's the end. As the newly formed State of Israel struggled to assemble even a functional army, they cobbled together as much used equipment as possible from anyone who was willing to sell. Some of it even worked. The Hotchkiss tank was one such piece of equipment that the Israelis were able to acquire. Hotchkiss is a 1939 French-built tank. A tank expert he came here and he said, basically, I want to tell you guys this tank was used by the Nazis. We said, well, how do you know? He said, in 1940, Nazi Germany conquered France. They also conquered their tanks. This one's simply been repainted and sold to you guys. This guy takes out a knife, scratches off some paint on the front. Sure enough, it's a swastika, Nazi bird logo. Why is this important? Why is this relevant? Uh, because the tanks that we start with to establish the Jewish state were tanks used by people that wanted to wipe Jews off the face of the earth. I'll cut it short and we win that war. Today, Lutrun serves as the memorial site dedicated to the fallen soldiers of the Israeli Armored Corps. So I'm at Lutrun. We just did a memorial service to commemorate the fallen soldiers, men and women who battled for the freedom of Israel. And it's, um, we just laid a wreath, and uh, it's just been a really moving experience. People don't realize the price of freedom. And though they're constantly dealing with persecution around the world, the Jews are resilient people. Being surrounded by terror groups like Hezbollah to the north, Hamas to the south, and nation states like Iran that want to wipe Israel completely off the map, their very existence is nothing short of miraculous. It is a constant state of everyone from every side of your country wants to kill you. And it's incredible that people that live in this constant state of fear that have God and know their history and know that it's worth fighting for and that there is a God protecting them that they can live in peace and about their lives in this country on a daily basis is incredible. The group has seen a lot over the course of their 10 days in Israel. And as they near the end of their trip, they begin to reflect on their experiences, reflections that will continue in the days, weeks, and months after returning back to the United States. My biggest takeaway is the vital importance of Israel's safety and them being sustained. Because as Israel goes, so goes the shining city on the hill, the United States of America. I was teaching about a mile from uh, World Trade Center 9-11. And what amazes me is how they're just so unafraid of living on the constant threat of terrorism. That strength is, is something to be admired. I'm just blown away, not only by the family and the culture of it all, but by the persistence, the desire to kind of chase after God and learn about his ways. When faith in God is removed from society, 
as is the current trend in the United States, it opens the door for other things to be worshipped. On an individual level, this can be any pursuit that captures your attention in a given moment generally, which is something selfishly motivated. On a societal level, it tends to move in the direction of socialism and eventually communism as government fills the deity vacuum that has left faith as brushed aside. And when communism seeps into a culture, freedom and liberty are sacrificed on the altar and what exclusively remains is that which serves to advance the nation state. Everything else is quelled. On the contrary, what allowed the U.S. to rise so quickly as a relatively young country is that its principles were based on Judeo-Christian values, which encourage freedom of thought, expression and exchange, among other things, all of which create wealth in a society, a wealth of ideas, spiritual wealth, financial wealth and more. That's what makes America beautiful. But instead, this is where we're headed. Some breaking news. UC Berkeley protests just starting in the past few minutes. They are demonstrating the appearance of Ann Coulter, and they say they plan to keep her from speaking tonight. Not allowed, you know, into the venue. Well, I mean, YAF did inform you that I was coming as a speaker, as a as a person sitting in the audience, as well as as a member of uh, Christina Summers' team. So, uh, I'm not sure what other standards are necessary. I'm also wondering exactly why it's so necessary to keep me personally out. We're just following protocols. Ben Shapiro, what's why is everyone upset? He's a transphobe and a racist and a kind of a Jewish. Yeah, he's supposed to be speaking here. Well, why is everyone against him? No fascist USA. No, no fascist USA as he tries to silence me from talking to people. Nice. We can disagree, but we're not here to get violent with anybody. That makes one of us. So you're here to get violent with people? If you get away from these cops, I will end you. So just to be just to be clear, if I attempt to enter that hall right there and sit down just to listen to somebody speak, or if I attempt to ask a question or to engage in free speech, you will have me arrested. At this point, yes, sir. But when you start snuffing out people and ideas, thinking that you're doing society a service by morality policing, you're actually having the opposite effect. For example, when the black hooded face mask wearing group Antifa, which is short for anti-fascist, show up at a university to thwart someone speaking that they deem unworthy of having a microphone that is okay. ironically and hypocritically fascist we think about the protest. and the more we bend to such groups the further down the road we go to becoming a nation just many others that have gone before us nations that end in oppression malfunction and eventually defeat a week 10 days ago when we first arrived i thinking that this was going to be a vacation and 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 this and it has been probably the trip or experience of my life what does faith mean to america is faith important i think it is important to our culture uh, for so many reasons our faith really is a bit bedrock of our morality and uh and we'd like to believe that without faith we can be moral and it just over the last 70, 80, 100 years, we just realized that's just not not the, the truth because our faith is really how we treat one another. And it's not just about our eternal life, but about how we as a society function and about how we, we just treat one another in love. Faith is the ability to believe in something you can't see. 
faith for me is strength, then it's kept me going through all of my struggles. But being here, I'm starting to think that my faith is much broader, that it's in the things that I do see my faith grows, like the love of Christ in people. So that's been very, very special to me. And reading scripture, I always thought, in my head had this fantasy land idea of how did he get from this point to that point in scripture, like the last couple of days of his life on the earth. And I was thinking it's probably 18, 20, 30 miles apart. How did he get there? How does it really line up with scripture? How is that possible? Well, you come here and as you can see, the Garden of Gethsemane, he walked to the Eastern Gate here about 200 feet. It totally makes sense with scripture how this is possible just by being here in person. Judeo-Christianity preaches to interact with people and show them love rather than hate and to preach this message of hope and forgiveness rather than doom and despair. And I think that we have to fight to keep it alive for our future children and generations to come. Is it making the Bible come alive for you? Yes, it has, yeah. Are you feeling? I think I'll read it. I think I'll go back and want to read a little bit more in depth on it now. I mean, it's really renewed my faith. And this is just a trip of a lifetime, and I'm just so much richer for it. Will you read the Bible differently, do you Yes, think? I know I will, yeah. Yeah, sometimes, how do you know that really that stuff happened? But here, here I can kind of really believe it did. Some of the stuff that we've seen, certainly. Oh, yeah. It's really, to me, it's proved it. Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, yeah. I feel like I would have been one of the disciples that fell asleep. I've done that in my yeah. faith yeah. today, even. So, well, I right, and that's 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 an analogy yeah. for our times. Right. The trip to Israel really made me think about why I believe in the Lord and helped expand my knowledge of the Bible. And all that we've done and all that we've experienced to just walk where Jesus walked, what Jesus saw, and. Uh, and to, to kind of put it all together from the words that, that I've read in the scriptures many, many times to actually experiencing the scriptures has really just brought a, a new level of depth, a new level of appreciation. Getting to visit the places Jesus visited and preached made the topic of faith much more real to me. It changes the way the Bible is understood when you see the dirt, the ground, the rocks, the air, the trees. It comes alive, absolutely. This is the end of our trip. This is the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ, if you will, because everything that came before was really just the prelude to the rest of the story. And we've invited people to join us on that journey, that journey of the rest of the story. And uh, we've had people who did join us from this trip, even. Marking the end of the group's trip to the Holy Land also marks the beginning of a period of reflection on the journey and experiences that each person had along the way. A journey to pursue what is good and true in this world in reflecting on the cultural impact of the arrival of a Jewish carpenter named Jesus on this earth. This man, who quickly became a prominent cultural figure by his actions and claims, forced everyone to have a life-altering view about his claims to be the Messiah. For the Jewish people that were tired of constantly being on the run or enslaved, they wanted a savior to lead them away from a life of persecution. So they welcomed this guy as uh, 
a military leader, somebody with political capability, a little bit of juice that will lead a revolt against the, the Romans. Now, this guy's mission was a little different. He was saying, you know, I can free you politically, I can put you in a conservative party or a liberal party, but until your heart is free, until your soul is free, until your spirit is free from the bondage of sin, all this other stuff doesn't make any sense. To me, the, the most important sort of facet of Christianity is this idea of forgiveness. And I see that we are losing forgiveness in the nation to a, an astonishing degree. And so the moment that you do anything wrong, you're out. And the problem with that is there's, there's no gratification. There's no resolution if there's no forgiveness. And if that's the attitude, then it's all downhill. Here we are a year later after our trip to, to Israel. And now to the latest on the coronavirus. The United States is reporting the highest number of deaths in a single day. 100,000 American dead and counting. It's the biggest spike in two months. There are now more than 5.2 million cases of coronavirus worldwide. An outbreak at this South Korea warehouse. Infections surging in Latin America. The new epicenter. What is the rate of growth? What is the rate of infection? Can your hospitals handle Clinics are overwhelmed. Desperate to find beds for his ICU. A record number of infections and deaths almost daily. As we go through this worldwide pandemic, it's been a roller coaster. As most others, I've experienced fear and anxiety due to coronavirus. The weeks of forced isolation have been hard. We were living in such an uncertainty as we are today, and the feeling of being unsettled. I've been confused, nervous, annoyed and frustrated. It's not just the threat of the coronavirus. There are riots, unemployment, bankruptcies, and all sorts of awful things happening. We've seen in the last week the U.S. become an increasingly divided country following the siege at Capitol Hill. The world watching what America looked like today. Fight aboard a Valley flight, an Allegiant passenger refusing to wear his mask. A security guard who told them they couldn't be there without a face company. Guys, stop. When we got to the side, this is what remains. He was attacked. A violent and bloody brawl broke out right here behind Chaos. Division. Confusion. Fear. Who do we believe? Do we wear masks? Do we not wear masks? Do we believe the media? Which media do we believe? Who's telling the truth? Mixed information. Finger pointing. Justification of violence. All hallmarks of sin in a society devoid of God. The mob storming the barriers, pushing through this door. Capitol Police unable to hold them back. Others smashing through windows of the Capitol. Right now, our society is quick to make enemies of those we even slightly disagree with. Finger So I'm in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was arrested, where he prayed and the disciples fell asleep. 
where Judas betrayed him with a kiss. On the contrary, in the midst of his betrayal, Jesus took an enemy of his in Judas and called him friend. present time in our country is absolutely crucial. Are we going to continue down the path that we're on, furthering confusion, division, fear, where tolerance means shunning those we disagree with? Or will we reinstall the Judeo-Christian values we were founded on? Values that forgive rather than cancel. Values that aren't swayed by public opinion, trends, or online mobs that seek to shame and exclude for perceived infractions. As Alexander Pope stated in his poem, an essay on criticism, to err is human, to forgive, divine. We've canceled so many in the eye of the public, but we simply can't afford to cancel God.